So we're in our second week in uh, studying the book of Romans. Last week we said that Paul was talking to a, a brand new church, that it was a group of people that were there at Pentecost that went back to Rome, started their own church, but they hadn't had much teaching in how to be the church. And so Paul was just giving them the basics. And he starts with the truth of the gospel. And so in chapter one, he starts building this case for the need of a savior and the reason that we all need Jesus, and that's because of sin, that we're all sinners. Therefore, we all need Jesus. That that's the one thing that is true for every single person on this earth. Uh, and it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what your background is. We all need Jesus because we all need saved from our sin. And we're all united in the need for our Savior. And it was important to Paul to point out those things that they had in common because the church in Rome had a lot of differences. You had Jewish people from Israel, you had Roman people from Italy, you had Greeks, you had many others. And because it was Rome, about 80 years into the Roman Empire, you had people from all over Europe and, and, and some from Africa and some from Asia. You had... Uh, you had people what, from what would be modern-day Spain and, and England and France and Germany, people from modern-day Africa, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, Middle East, Israel, Jordan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Turkey. I mean, it can cover a lot of area with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different religions and upbringings. And so Paul is writing a letter to the church in Rome which is made up of Jews, but all these other people groups, a bunch of different backgrounds. But the one thing that united them all was that they were all sinners in need of Jesus. And so when we left off last week, Paul had said that God's going to punish sin, and it doesn't matter who you are, that on the day of judgment, he's going to judge us all, not for just the things we've said and done, but for the secret life we have as well. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And Actually, we're going to start a little bit. We're going to back up just a little bit before where we left off. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be starting at Romans chapter 2, verse 11, and reading pretty well through the end of chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles and are going to be reading along, I'm going to be reading... Uh, and especially if you're um, uh, watching up here, uh, some of it might not uh, match up exactly with what's up here because I'm going to be uh, reading a, some of my NIV in here is from 1984 NIV rather than 2011. But you can you you you'll be able to follow along. Uh, but Romans chapter two verse eleven starts off with this that God does not show favoritism. When Gentiles sin, again, Gentiles were everyone who was not Jewish. When Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And God's written law, that the law that he's going to talk about through a lot of Romans, the law is everything that God commanded through Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, some of the laws in Exodus, uh, and numbers, and there's a lot of it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. In, in the Old Testament, uh, covered pretty much all of life. 
the law covered food you should eat, covered bodily functions, it covered mildew, it covered relationship issues, it covered worship, it covered holidays. If you can think of it, it pretty much covered it. There was a lot of the law. And so he says, uh, and the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law if they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. Because, again, uh, a lot of the law is instinctual. We kind of know it, that it's wrong to steal, that it's wrong to kill people, uh, that, it, that, that kind of thing. It says these demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And this is the main, this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when the Lord God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life, which is sort of where we left off last week, but now we continue. And Paul starts by continuing this idea that God does not show favoritism because the Jewish people in the church in Rome kind of had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Because they were God's chosen people. They grew up knowing and understanding that they were God's chosen ones. And therefore, they had grown up with this idea that anyone who wasn't Jewish just wasn't quite as good as they were. And at that time, they, especially the Jews, had their struggles with different prejudices, even against those Gentiles in their church. If you read through the Gospels, the, the reason that, that the Jews hated the Samaritans so much were, were the Samaritans were part Jewish but part other nations and other cultures. And th- so these pure Jews didn't want to have anything to do with these half-breed Jews. The, the Samaritans held some of the Jewish beliefs but not all of the Jewish beliefs. So for people in Jewish times, for them to think of Samaritans, it was like, oh, Samaritans, like I don't want to be around them. But Gentiles, they were even worse. Uh, We were talking about this out of the boat Thursday, that some of the rabbis at that time taught that the reason that God created Gentiles was so that they could die and go to hell and keep the fires of hell hot, that Basically, the only reason and only use for Gentiles was kindling for hell. So in that time, Jews wouldn't even talk to Gentiles or go in their home or eat their food. It was completely outside of their thinking to even associate with a Gentile. But, but this is how cool God is. This, is. this is how awesome the church is and how awesome the church can be. Because Jesus died for all of them, and when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit came for all of them, and now these two people that wouldn't talk to each other or associate with each other are now in church together, which it really kind of sounds like a, like a good setup for a sitcom. You know, it's like like the odd couple. It's, it's like, can the Jews and the Gentiles be in the same church without driving each other crazy? 
da 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 But they, they made it work. They, they made it work. The, the, it was the Acts 2 type church where they came together and they, they were sharing with one another and they were living life and doing life together. But they made it work. But, but even still, there was sort of this feeling of, well, Jesus was Jewish and Christianity is based on the Jewish faith and we're circumcised and you're not. So we're a little bit better than these Gentiles. And I mean, yes, the Jewish people had a leg up because they already understood some things and had some context that the Gentiles didn't yet. But there was still kind of this condescending, like, here, let us help you heathens learn how to do things the right way. And that was sort of a major battle that the early church fought and the, an obstacle that they had to overcome. It's all throughout the New Testament of, of Jews versus Gentiles and circumcised versus uncircumcised and food you can't eat and food you can't eat. And Paul had to deal with that. And he's doing that in Romans while he's also talking about our sinful nature. And so Paul has to deal with the attitude of the Jews and this sort of attitude of superiority. And so that's where we pick up today in Romans chapter 2 uh, and starting at verse 17. And then we're going to read pretty much straight through 3. So he says this. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, and you brag about your relationship with God. If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind and a light for those who are in the dark. And an instructor for the foolish. A teacher for the infants. Because you have, the, have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. He said, well then, if you teach others... Why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And, and, and that, that line right there would have been hard for a Jew to hear. If you don't obey God's law, you're no better than an uncircumcised Gentile. Paul's kind of hammering on these guys a little bit. He says, if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't the God declare them to be his own people? That would have been a little hard to hear too. In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who, don't, who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. 
And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it's a change of heart produced by God's spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. He goes on in chapter 3 and says, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? He says, yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. Paul's saying, look, it's important that you're a Jew. That's still important. God gave you all of the Old Testament. You have this context that they don't have. He says, the, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. And that's another thing that, another theme that you're going to see as we go through Romans. One of them we talked about last week, you're going to see first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You're going to hear that repeated a lot. The other one is, is this, of course not, or maybe your, uh, your translation says, by no means. He, he makes this argument and, and then he says, of course it's not that way. He says, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say and you will win your case in court. But, some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. It, it, it sounds like a kid trying to rationalize. Well, dad, I was just being good so that you could see how good I am when I'm being good. So... You don't have to punish me now because you know how good I really am. You know, it's like, what? No, that's, that's not right. Of course not, he says. Again, by no means. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Paul says, those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. And don't forget what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard your ancestors told if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. It, murder and anger, it's all a heart issue. He says they rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. He says, obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. You can't be made right with God by being good enough. You just can't. Paul says the law simply shows us how sinful we are. He, so he's building this case that 
we all need a Savior, that we're all guilty before God, that we're all sinful, that we have no excuse. We all have turned away. There's nothing that we can do to be good enough, that you can't earn your salvation, that God doesn't show favor, that we're all guilty. He says in verse 21, but now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet, God in his undeserved kindness declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through, his, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And I'm so thankful for the justice of God, that God punishes sin, but because he is just and sin requires punishment through death and God requires justice, God did punish sin through Jesus that even the, the, the sins that were committed before Jesus, that he had left unpunished, he did so that through his justice for all time could be seen. So then he goes on to say in Romans three twenty seven to 30, he says, can we boast then that we've done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So we're made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There's only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. Now today, in in our culture, in our country, in where we're at in life, we, we don't really struggle with the Jew versus Gentile problem in church. We don't really have that, that well, I'm a Jew and you're not a Jew, or I'm a Gentile and you're not, kind of, kind of back and forth. We don't deal with that. We don't have that, that struggle to have unity between Jews and Gentiles, figuring out how to do church from two different people groups. For us, that's not really an issue. But being a church and being the church, the big C church, all the church, being the church, a group of people trying to follow Jesus who come together from different families and different people groups and different ways of being raised, coming together with different beliefs and different ideologies and different denominational backgrounds and different ways of being taught the Bible and different places they grew up and different ways they grew up and different uh, opinions about things. With all that baggage that we come into church with 
and trying to figure out how to have unity in the church, in Antioch, in Logan, in America, in the world today, that I think we can understand. Of how, how do we be united when we have all these different things and different ideas and all that? That I think we can understand a little bit. That's something that I do think is an issue in the church in America today. And so I, I think that in reading this passage today, there is something that God wants to speak to us, that God can teach us about being a church that is united. So what can we learn from the passage today? There's, there's three takeaways that I, I want to talk about. First of all, it's this, and this is a pretty simple one. It's that the gospel, hear me on this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone, every single person. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter what you've believed, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. The gospel is for every race, color, creed. It doesn't matter your gender or your gender identity. It doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, L, B, G, T, T, Q, Q, I, A, A, P, or D. Yes, there are that many letters now. I checked. I don't know what they mean, but there's that many. It doesn't matter what your politics or your beliefs or your convictions or your leanings or how conservative you are or how liberal you are. It doesn't matter what religion you are or denomination you are, whether you're uh, swinging from the chandelier Pentecostal or some of the frozen chosen Methodist Presbyterian types. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. That is what Paul is saying, that it's for all of us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. No one can measure up. No one is good enough. No one can do anything to be good enough. And God doesn't play favorites. Romans 3.10 said, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. We have all sinned, and that means we all desperately need Jesus. And that is the thing that unites every single person in this room, that unites every single person in our community, that unites every single person on this planet. We are all sinners. We all desperately need Jesus. We all have that in common. The gospel is the most inclusive thing ever. Now, the life that Jesus calls us to, that's exclusive, but the gospel itself is super inclusive. Everybody, everybody. The gospel is for everybody. And although the life that Jesus calls us to is pretty set apart from the world we live into, and that's pretty exclusive, there's still room for a lot of differences under the banner of Jesus. 
And we'll get to that. As we go through Romans, we'll get to that. That, that there's room for differences, that we can, we can have different, all kinds of different backgrounds and, 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 and things and still be united as a church. We'll get into that because part of the book of Romans is Paul kind of helping them work through that. When you get to like Romans 14, you have you know, some Christians that are Jewish and living with a lot of their Jewish heritage are still pretty close to you know, eating things that are kosher. So they're, they're eating the, the food that Jews typically ate, no pork, no shellfish, no, uh, you know, and then Saturday was the Sabbath day. So you had those Christians in the Roman church, but then you also had Gentile Christians in the Roman church that, you know, they're, they're eating a pulled pork sandwich on Saturday before they head down with the boys to, you know, endless shrimp. You know, they, and they had to learn to deal with those differences. And, and they did. But the, the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, the gospel is for you. Here's the second ta- takeaway from the passage. That we who have been Christians for a while, who have been in the church for a while have to guard against being like the Jews in the Roman church with the chip on their shoulder. We have to be careful that pride doesn't become an open door for hypocrisy. Like I said, the Jews were the people with this attitude like, oh, we've got this figured out. We're more godly than you because we know what's going on. We'll show you how to be godly like we are. But then they weren't living it out. Paul says, you call yourself a Jew, you you rely on the law, and you brag about your relationship with God. You you say you know his will, and you approve what's superior because you are instructed by the law, and you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind. You're convinced that you're a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, the teacher of the infants. He says, but if you're such a great teacher, then why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? He says, you're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. He says, no wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. If we're running around and saying, we know better than you, we, we know how to do life better than you. Here, let us show you how to be living your life. Then we had better be showing them something better. We'd best not be representing Jesus when all the world is going to see is hypocrisy. Jesus said, take the log out of your eye before you try to help somebody with the speck in theirs. Church, the world is watching us. The world is watching you. There are a lot of people in this world that will most likely never walk into a church. There are people in this world that will most likely never open a Bible. There are tons of people in this world and in this country that don't know very much about Jesus other than what they see and hear on TV, and that's frightening. There are tons of people in this world, in this country, 
that don't know very much about Jesus other than what they see and hear on TV and the, from the few people that they know who are Christians. And so if they know that you're a Christian and they know that you're a believer, then you might be the only real experience that they ever have with Jesus. With Jesus working through you, you might be the only Jesus that someone ever meets. So what is it that they would believe about Jesus by interacting with you? If the only thing that they have to go on, if, if all they know about Jesus is what they see in you, what are they going to think Jesus is like? Because if they see you stealing, cheating somehow, taking a little bit more than you should, if they see you not loving your wife or your husband or your kids, if you say you're all about Jesus, but then they don't see you living it out, you can be so proud that you're a Christian, but if they don't see you loving your neighbor and caring for people that are in need and caring for people that are hurting and praying for people who need it, if we can't do that, the unbelieving world will blaspheme the name of God because of us. And they do. When the world sees us reacting in anger because we don't like something, what do they think about Jesus? When the world sees how we treat other people that we disagree with, what do they think about Jesus? When the world sees how we talk to and act toward people who aren't Christians, who have radically different beliefs, who claim one of those many letters, who have sinful attitudes and ideas, who we kind of tend to think of like the Jews thought of the Gentiles. When the world sees how we talk to and act and treat those people, what do they think about Jesus? When the world sees our attitude, whatever that might be towards COVID-19, what do they think about Jesus? If we, the people of the church, are the only Jesus that some people will see, what do they think Jesus' attitude is toward racism? When the world sees how we live out our lives, do they see the beauty of the church? When they see how we relate with each other, how we forgive each other, how Matthew 18, if somebody offends you, that, that you go to that person who offended you and, and you try to work it out. Because the Bible says if you work it out with that person that you win that brother over. That, that's a beautiful thing. That's, when the world sees how we interact with each other, do they see the beauty of the church? When the world sees our unity, 
or the lack thereof? What do they think about Jesus? The world is watching us. A very divided world is watching us. If we, the church of Jesus Christ, are united under the blood of Jesus and united because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are united because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet are all justified freely through Christ, does the world see the beauty and glory and power of Jesus living through us in our unity? If we're united under the banner of Jesus, do they see it? Or has our disunity ruined us? Has our disunity blemished the bride of Christ? Has our disunity with other believers in this church? Has our disunity with believers in the big C church, the church universal, the church, you know, I mean, all the different denominations because we weren't able to be united. Has our disunity with other believers in our church, in the big C church, the other church bodies with their other convictions and other backgrounds and other upbringings and other ethnicities, has it ruined our witness because of our stupid, sinful pride? Because if so, the world will blaspheme the name of Jesus because of us. Because we didn't live it out. We said, watch us, and so they did. And then we showed them something sinful. Just like the Jews, they said, we're, we're teachers, we're, we're, we're a guide for the blind, we're a light for those in the dark, we're an instructor for the foolish. But Paul says, look, you, you say you're a teacher, but you're not doing what you say. He says, that's why the, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God, because of you. We can't let our pride and our sinfulness and our disunity be the thing that the world points to and say, that's why I don't believe in Jesus. And here's the last takeaway. The last takeaway is this. We can show them something better. We can. We can. We can show the world something better. For as much of a struggle as it was for the church in Rome to find unity, they did. For as crazy as it was to, for God to say, okay, we're going to take the Gentiles and we'll throw in some Samaritans and we'll throw in the Jews and we'll throw in some, some good old you know, English Anglicans and eh, we'll take a couple people from Egypt and Libya and we'll throw them in there and a couple people from Syria, we'll just throw them all together. For as much as it was a struggle for the church in Rome to find unity, they did. How does, how does 
Paul start his letter? He starts this Romans 1.8. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. He doesn't say, I thank my God for, for my Jewish brothers and sisters because your faith is being reported all over the world. He doesn't say, I thank my God for, for you Gentile believers because your faith is being reported all over the world. He says, I thank my God for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Look, we here at Antioch, we're a very united church. We're very united. Do we have our struggles at times? Sure. But I, I said it last week, it's not easy following Jesus. And that's as true, as, it's a, as true together as it is individually. It, I mean, it's hard enough for, for me to follow Jesus just on my own, to, to work through that and figure it out and work out my salvation in, with fear and trembling. And I'm working it out and doing my best, and you're working it out and doing your best, so it makes sense that when we all get together, well, you know, we're, it's going to be a struggle sometimes. But I know this. I, I know that we can have our differences when it comes to what we prefer, and that's okay. We can have differences when it comes to our convictions. That's okay. But our, our differences will never have more power than the blood of Jesus. Because we're all united under the banner of Jesus. We're all united knowing that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all united in knowing that none of us are perfect. We're all united knowing that we've all sinned, none of us are perfect, and we all need a Savior. And that Savior's name is Jesus. We're all united in those things. We're, we all want to do our best to follow him. Sometimes we get judgy because we're like, oh, they did this, they did this. But we're all doing our best. I, I don't think there's many people out there that are like, oh, I'm just going to try to coast and try and kind of follow Jesus. We're, I, we're, we're all trying to do our best. And when we can be defined by what unites us rather than what differentiates us, our faith will be reported all over the world. What if when the world saw us, when our community saw us, it wasn't the differences they saw, but the unity? I mean, think about the gossip that you hear. I know gossip's a sin, but it still happens. When you hear gossip about other churches, what are you usually hearing about? You're hearing about differences they're having. What if when the world saw us, what is when the community saw us and talked about us, what if it wasn't the differences that they were talking about? What if it was the unity? And the world and our community would ask themselves, how can you guys have differences and still be so united? How can you have differences and be unified at the same time? Because that's the question so many people in the world are asking right now. 
is, is can you be different and still be united? And we know, the church knows, the answer can be yes. Because we have the church in Rome as an example. What if Logan knew the answer was yes because they had us as an example? What if the people in Logan that are asking the question right now, with, with all of our differences, can, can we still be united? What if our friends and neighbors were able to say, yeah, it, it's possible because I see Antioch doing it. I don't know how they do it. Maybe it's that Jesus thing. What if Antioch Alliance Church took the lead in showing unity? What if Antioch Alliance Church took the lead in our community in loving others and caring for each other? What if Antioch Alliance Church took the lead in saying, look, we might not all be the same, but we can all come together in Jesus' name? Because see, before Jesus... It was a choice, Jew or Gentile, pick one. After Jesus, after the spirit fell on the church, it was and, Jew and Gentile. May we stop seeing each other with oars and start seeing each other with ands. May we show the world something better. That they may know that Jesus is real and praise our Father in heaven. So that our faith may be reported everywhere. Our faith in Jesus' name. Amen.